Radio for the Agile Community. www.agile.fm On today's episode, I have David, the dude husband. And uh, thanks for uh, joining me here for a, uh, another wonderful episode uh, with you, David. We spoke a while ago on uh, this show, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Happy to do so. David, first of all, congratulations to another wonderful Agile Day in Minneapolis. I was there myself, and I, I saw the whole thing. 350 or so people, 400 sold out event. Congratulations. Thanks. Kind of interesting that it's taken off. We uh, never really set out to be conference organizers. Although, once I went to this interesting conference in New York, and the organizer had a good model, so I sort of stole it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it definitely worked on your fishbowl in the morning, and you know people are coming out. And uh, I, I have to say, you know, Minneapolis—it's not New York City in terms of size—and you're bringing out a crowd that shows the interest in agile um, in Minneapolis, and uh, it's amazing. It's really good to see. Yeah, one of the things I think a lot of people don't understand about Minneapolis is how many huge companies are based here. So, you know, as the popularity of the whole Agile movement grows, there's just more and more companies thirsting for success that they're seeing at other companies. Right. Absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of headquarters out there. There's actually one of the headquarters is in Minneapolis I'm very well aware of, and that's the one from Def Jam. Yeah. It's a great place. It's a I'm great place. <laughs> I know. I'm not biased. And uh, I do have to say for everybody listening to this podcast, um, it's a very interesting concept you put together, um, a coffee shop, an office, uh, you know, agile development practices. You're mixing, you're having a good mix here of people interested in development as well as, you know, collaborating. It's a collaborative space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trying to set up sort of a continuous open space where people can move around and interact freely. Yeah, so if you want to have good coffee ever and you're in Minneapolis, stop at Def Jam. Uh, headquarters. <laughs> All right. The thing I wanted to talk about today is actually I want to focus our conversation on a thing you call Cardboarded, and it's available as a as a product as Cardboardit.com. That's a product you uh, you guys created at Def, at Def uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, right? And um, it's a it's a product uh, which is I'll probably let you explain that because you're much much better at this. Uh, about story mapping and uh, customer journeys. So what can people do with this product? Why did you create another tool for this market? Where did you see the need for that? Uh, yeah, I certainly didn't set out to be a tool manufacturer, but uh, it turns out that Jeff Patton and I, were, who were both started arranging stories in what Jeff called the story map, and I would say is sort of a left-to-right interaction and a top-to-bottom decomposition. We were both doing this stuff with cards and post-its, and uh, we realized that people in distributed ecosystems didn't really have much of a way to collaborate and work together. And one of the powerful things that happens when you're put building out these interaction models and story maps is that people are pointing at things going, you know, saying this and that. Like it's funny how when you use the technique in multiple countries, you learn the words this and that pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Jeff and I both discovered we were building the same thing, and it was interesting because both tools had collaboration at the heart, and then we just joined forces and renamed it to be Cardboard It, which is 
nice that you said it correctly because a lot of people ask me if it's cardboard IT and I sort of shiver at that name because it's like, oh, no, don't associate me with IT. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the tagline for cardboard is, is if, uh, if Google Docs and Post-it Notes had a kid, it would look like cardboard. So, yeah, while you can use it for story mapping, it's really just cards on a board. And in fact, we, uh, we were just in this site called Product Hunt, and someone picked up cardboard, and uh, he was actually a German journalist that said, wow, this would really work great for journalists. And we're finding that not only are people in the tech space using it for things like story mapping, but people are using it for collaboration, like teachers and nurses, and apparently mm. this person was a journalist. So it's really to try and capture the same experience with two people standing at a board arranging cards or post-its. Mm -hmm. So... What I so what I want to ask you is actually like most like a trap people could fall into when they look at the the website of Cardboarded um, and they see story maps and customer journeys and they're laying out these kind of concepts. Do you think some people could get that wrong and feel like there's a danger of falling into a waterfall trap, like upfront planning, upfront customer journeys? How do you prevent this from happening that people go off in the wrong direction? Yeah, I've been trying to kind of normalize some of the language and kind of run away from the process. And I've been trying to get people to think about like a product discovery and a product delivery cadence. Because sometimes I think even in the agile space, people become overly certain. They write their stories and then you just start sprinting forward. So if we certainly go back to like 50% discovery up front, we're deferring our learning. And then I don't know if I care if it's waterfall or agile, I think that people fall into the trap that I call, you know, mythical certainty or mm -hmm. product arrogance where, the, you know, they're, they're getting sucked back into that the metaphor of the requirements mm -hmm. instead of this idea of like discovery goes on and on. Um, one of the larger clients I have, we did something really interesting where we said, you know, how much do we want, what percentage of time do we want to spend up front? And I thought that was cool, and they chose no more than 10%, and then we came up with sort of like a checklist for readiness mm -hmm. for discovery work. And I was a big fan of that because it's not about how to do Agile or how to do Waterfall. It's If you have 100% of some window, like you're driving towards a 12-month trade show, how much time do you spend up front doing discovery before you start learning from delivery? Mm -hmm. Tell me, how I do like you that language? That very much, yeah. What? How do you define discovery? If somebody's listening to this conversation right now, um, and it's like, what do you? How do you separate between the discovery part? Um, you know, would there be like, where and when in this in an overall project would you do discovery? Is this an ongoing process? Yeah, and, and I sort of just painted it in a weird dichotomous way, and, and probably what I should have said is no more than ten percent in raw discovery. Okay, where you're not trying to learn. So um, comes in different forms. I was at a big client today and someone said we're starting a project and I said define project. And it turns out their definition of what a project is is some kind of return on investment for funding in some time window. Mm -hmm. So long before that team started, someone promised something to someone that was probably unrealistic. So there's already a constraint there. I think that's a very for typical people, scenario, David. Yeah, right. So for that group, if that constraint was like three months, 
you know, I couldn't imagine spending three weeks up front, but I also don't know if three hours is right. So right. I'm not sure if 10% is like a magic number, like E or pi. Right. But I do think that, you know, the pendulum swung a little bit too far in one direction when we all started just writing stories and not really thinking in product before we started learning from delivery. Right. So from, um, from a process perspective, a lot of the listeners out there, or even like in general, people have a better understanding or, or got a better understanding of Scrum in the, or Agile process in general in the recent years, where in this overarching project, let's say somebody has an idea, a product or a project, uh, where would these techniques would fit in uh, at the earliest point? If there is a, would there, for example, be a scrum team already uh, a part of a project, or would this be just a few uh, business folks mapping out a, a potential scenario for a customer journey? See now, you see, you've done a better job of probably explaining the motivation for cardboard than I did when you asked <laughs> the question because. When you sit down with a team of people, um, product discovery group, you know, people with understanding of the market, understanding of the use and the users, and understanding of the technology space, mm -hmm. then if you start out in post-its or cars and it gets pushed into some kind of a tool and the tool flattens it out into a list, you lose that sort of nice interactive uh, visualization. So one of the things we did with Cardboard right away is we allowed people to do a visualization like that and then push it into JIRA. Uh -huh. Because a tool like JIRA, version one, whatever, all those different uh, tools, they sort of think about things in teams and time and, and in JIRA's case, tickets. Uh -huh. And I'm trying to shift people to think about use and product and certainty and validation. Uh -huh. So you can still have teams banging away in in uh, iteration sprints with tickets in JIRA, but then the people that are thinking about the product side, they can kind of visualize that use, and then in Cardboard, you can flip on and off the status when you're connected to a tool. So sort of like when you're using uh, like a Google Maps, and you mm -hmm. want to go from one place to another, and it shows you 20 minutes, and you're like, 20 minutes? That doesn't make sense. I've driven this a bunch of times. And then what do you do? You flip on the traffic, because you want to say, Oh, this route has more traffic. I'll take this route I don't know because it's shorter, but it's not because it's faster, even though it's not shorter, I should say. Right. So cardboard kind of helps you think in product first and status and progress second. Mm -hmm. This is what I've noticed in your talk at the, um, at the Agile Day. I forgot the exact title of it, but the whole conference was um, themed around product and, and your emphasis around product. Why are you so keen on the definition of product? I mean, there's so, so many um, agile teams out there who just like, you know, feed their backlog and walk off the top of the list and like keep going and going and going. And here comes this thing of a product. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong, but just want to see your motivation. Why are you so emphasizing product? Not only because it's called product backlog, but I would assume there's, uh, there's some other drivers for you here. Yeah, well, I, I sort of, I, I remember just when I, I started out in extreme programming and when I stumbled into Scrum, I was like, wow, this is nice because this concept of product owner and product backlog. And I was like, why are they putting that word so far forward? And then I kind of harkened back to my roots as building products. And um, I guess I think a lot of the early work in the Agile space was we're really bad at getting things done. 
Mm. But when people start getting things done, they find they're faced with a more ambiguous and not difficult because that's the wrong choice of words, but an ambiguous question of not can we get it done or how much did we get done? Mm-hmm. Like, are we building the right thing and how much real impact we're having? And productivity is sort of just a word of vehicle. But mm-hmm. I said to someone the other day, you know, the product is the impact you're having on the people that you're producing it for. That's right. And I expressly tried to run away from the users because I think that's sort of a flat way to think about impact. Mm-hmm. David, I saw in a tweet from you that you want to discard the word user story. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, well, you know, when I started, they were just called story cards. And <laughs> Um, what was really nice about that is it was so low ceremony and when we were talking about things, it was so much about having these things out on the table to discuss. And someone might say, well, let's create another card for that. And the mm-hmm. people I learned this stuff from, the idea of card having value to someone was sort of implied. And, you know, user story sort of got stuck on top of that. First it was a card, then it was a story card, then it was a story, then it was a user story. Mm-hmm. And, again, I think a lot of people get pretty wrapped around the axle on user story. And mm-hmm. if you just say card, it's just so simple. You sort of disarm people with simplicity. Well, uh, I like that, too, because I feel like, uh, at least based on my experience, I see a lot of... Um teams, you know, they're trying to fit this thing into a specific format rather than focusing on, you know, just tell me what you want. And uh, and they're trying to squeeze that into that format and they're confused about the format. Some are very shy about uh, putting it into the right format, making a mistake. They haven't been properly trained and they'd rather not do anything embarrassing um, than, uh, than putting the stuff on. So I feel like the card concept is the right thing. Just write it on a card. It doesn't matter if it's in the format or not, don't you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I sort of feel like there's a larger truth that you and I are sort of stumbling into that people older and wiser than us would say, I'm glad, you know, I remember when I had my first beer, which is, you know, the, 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 the value dies under the definition or the dialogue dies under the definition. When someone says, how do you do this? The mechanics outweigh the purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. Right. And did you, did you like your first beer? (laughs) <laughs> I did. It wasn't. It wasn't a nice German beer, but I still enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like mine first, but I, I you know, <laughs> I started liking it. <laughs> I think there's something to it. <laughs> Got to keep doing it. No, but it's a, it's an interesting thing. Ask, let me ask you about user experience from a, like how we define UX, visual design, and so forth from a, from a software development um, effort. How does that fit in into your story mapping? in your journey from uh, not only necessarily from cardboarded, but also on if you would do it on post-its. Um, how do you see that flow? Because that's very technical, but it's very linked to the actual business process. Yeah, and so you used the term customer journey a few times. And so uh, I started building out these maps in this form of like left to right interactions. But then you still, in order to kind of learn fast, you have to make choices. And I started realizing that, boy, choices based on discrete cards usually wasn't where the real value was. And the value was more in uh, maybe what UX people would call a series of interactions or a user experience. Mm-hmm. So I started hanging out with all these user experience people, trying to understand how they're working. And I realized 
well, I wasn't doing something I called user experience. I was doing something they called user experience. I just wasn't formally trained. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, as the people would say in car talk, I was unencumbered by the thought process. I wasn't (laughs) worried about whether I was doing it right. I was just doing things that started better discussions. Mm -hmm. So I just um, was in Iceland and I was, I got to speak with um, the person who wrote the Lean UX book. Oh yeah, Jeff Cotthoff, yeah. Yeah, and it turns out we're both, you know, frustrated musicians who ended up in this geek space, but Jeff comes from the design side and I come sort of on the development side. And so while I don't have like the visual design chops that he has, I think where we meet in the middle is on these maps and these journeys. Mm-hmm. He, he and I started talking about it right away. And one of the reasons I think the idea of a customer journey is to, at the heart of user experience is it's not what are we going to get done, it's where are we going to take these customers. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that great product companies have figured out. When you take people someplace that they don't know that they want to go, they love you for it because yeah. you've solved their problem. Edward Deming once said, Great ideas don't come from customers. They come from producers. Mm-hmm. It's our job to help people go where they want to go that they can't say yet. And the people that are good at this user experience stuff, they're not just, it's not just the process. It's sort of the outcomes and the impact that they care about. Now, just like programmers that get distracted by bright, shiny objects, there's plenty of people in the user experience space that are lost in how to do personas and mm. how to follow proper UX. And I just feel like Jeff's idea of lean UX is like do what's appropriate that helps you learn and continuously learn makes right. more sense to me. Right. I think you said something earlier um, uh, in this podcast. You said, you know, it's all about building the right product, right? Focusing on that. Maybe in combination what you just said. Like people or end users, potential end users, they don't even know in the beginning what is the right product. So we help them in the uh, duration um, of the project to get to that definition, what is the right product. How do you see in your practice here, and maybe that's one of my last questions here I have for you today, is how do you see the concept of MVP? That's a topic a lot of people use out there uh, these days, minimum viable product. Um, what kind of role does that play for you in your work, but also in your product? If it I doesn't, think, I, if sadly, it doesn't. and nothing to do with the people that started MVP. It's sort of, and a lot of companies become get stuff done fast, and they sort of jump over the viability, and they jump past all the great ideas that the lean startup people floated out, like eliminating uncertainty. And first time I heard eliminating uncertainty, I thought, here's a crowd of people that sort of value what I value, which is you know, some humility, some low tolerance of product arrogance, which is sort of my riff on mm-hmm. um, Taleb's epistemic arrogance, like product arrogance is the difference between what people need and what you think they need. And I think we're wrong much more than we're really willing to admit. In mm-hmm. fact, I jokingly, with people using story points, started saying, so you've got 26 points done. How many were wrong points? <laughs> and I can see from a lot of people this look on their face like, no, no, we got 26 points done. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad that they added up to 26, but how many were wrong? Mm. And then trying to help more groups in that discovery figure out 
how are you going to measure the impact you're having? Assume you're starting to deliver it iteratively. You're getting things done. How do you start measuring the impact you're having? Because it's not as discreet. Mm-hmm. It's more ambiguous. And you're wrong more than you realize. So you think MVP would foster a culture of, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but creating an environment where we're maybe losing or missing the bigger picture? No, no, no. In fact, I think MVP challenges people to have like more humility sooner. So to answer okay. your question more discreetly, I think the idea of a map with a customer journey is a discrete manifestation of MVP. Mm-hmm. Great. Because a lot of people want to say MVP, but they don't really know how to create products that you can feed to a team that you can validate or invalidate. Right. Well, I have seen numerous times where people use the value for the V in MVP rather than viable. Yeah. And they're creating the minimum valuable product. And it's like, well, that's really not the intent here. I heard someone replace viable with desirable. And <laughs> it's kind of an interesting riff. Yeah, the MDP. Maybe we yeah. just started something right here on this podcast at the very, very end of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> David, I wanted to uh, thank you for... Uh, spending some time again uh, with me and everybody else listening to this podcast out there for actually just taking a emphasizing the topic of uh, user stories and uh, you know your product cardboarded uh, to be found at cardboarded.com and um, check out Def Jam and uh, all the events you're running in uh, Minneapolis it's good for that uh, local crowd out there And I would throw back at you, I mean, if it's not obvious to anyone listening, but, you know, being at your Agile Bay in New York, it influenced me to say, I want to create something for my local community. And I had kind of a loose idea, but I just really feel like you're one of the people out there that's trying to kind of build local community where some of the best storytelling happens. Oh, thank you. Thank you, David. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks for the podcast. Thanks for the comp for the compliments and uh till next time. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Show Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.